Please be advised, the following contains descriptions of violence and may not be suitable for all listeners. Oh, it changed our lives forever. You can't really recover from something like that. What is happening in our community is very terrible. It's, it's pretty much a war zone out there. I was praying. I prayed. Because um, I, I felt like this was it. I felt like I wasn't going to make it. South Africa is in the depths of a crime crisis. More than 6,000 people were murdered in the first three months of this year alone. Every day, new horrifying headlines spark fear in the hearts of all South Africans, adding more stress to their daily existence. This is A Criminal's Paradise, a two-part podcast about a country being destroyed by an explosion of criminal activity at all levels around us every day of our lives. We're in Imbiquini, a township outside Paal in the Western Cape. It's framed by an enchanting vista of majestic mountains. People are going about their daily lives, hanging up their washing, strolling along the streets in the bright sunshine, while children play outside. But there is a foul stench in the air, which destroys the outwardly calm scene of rotting garbage and spilled sewage. It's here, next to a rubbish dump and a railway line, that we meet the family of Sipakazi Boy, a woman whose charred and dismembered body was dumped in a wheelie bin recently by her callous murderer. You I feel bad. The reason I feel bad, I didn't save in the body. So I can't forget now. Spogazi, not still alive. I think it was a good if he, I see the body there, then I can know this one is passed away. That's Sipokazi's aunt, Nontando Boy. She raised Sipokazi and is haunted by her murder every day. Sipokazi's boyfriend, Situbele Kwebe, has been arrested for the 27-year-old's murder. He allegedly killed her while on bail for allegedly assaulting her. I fear a lot because I was just thinking that when he be out in jail, he would do it again to me. She walks us to the crime scene, close to a small fire perched on a massive rubbish dump. It's a few meters from where the alleged murderer lived. His shack was burnt down by an enraged community. The empty plot now replaced by washing lines. What we need is action because we don't need tomorrow just we take the law in our own hands because of frustrating and be tired of what is happening in our community. Nothing has been done. Bukiwe Lemani is a community worker trying to support Boy's family through their grieving process and the months of accused Grebe's court appearances that still lie ahead. Nobody again to come and assist them that to the counselling regularly, but nothing happened. It was only once and finish. Then I said our government doesn't care a lot about us. Ian Cameron, director of civil rights lobby group Action Society, has stepped in to help the Boy family through the court process. We have thousands of detectives at police stations that have got more than 300 cases or dockets on their table at any given time. So it's, it's impossible for any human to do effective work if you've basically got 300 projects on your table. And then 
imagine they many of them are severely traumatic projects as well and what then happens with sexual offenses and that's where action society comes in because we mainly focus on gender-based violence is that many of these cases don't even make it to court because there isn't um, sufficient investigation done or the investigation lacks many elements needed for it actually to reach court so our conviction rate in South Africa for sexual offences, according to the Medical Research Council, is less than 5.3%, which is shocking. That means that we've literally got streets full of sexual offenders walking around freely because we don't have successful convictions. Nontando Boy will face Grebe in the Paul Regional Court in December. There have been countless delays since Sipokazi was murdered in September 2021, including the retirement of the magistrate presiding over the case. We watch Nontando receding in the rear-view mirror as we leave Imbukweni. She will walk home past the crime scene, a constant reminder of how life in South Africa claimed one of her own. Now we've got ten jumping jacks. And go. One, two, three. In another part of Cape Town, we meet Leska Nietling. In the mountains above Cape Town's City Bowl, she finds solace in nature. She's a personal trainer with a story that haunts her too. Leska's mother was murdered on her farm in Wellington after she picked up three casual workers from the Imbukweni township, the township we have just visited. She normally went to McQueney in Wellington and she got some casual workers there to work on the farm for the day or, you know, do some landscaping. And apparently she picked up a couple of guys and they came to work for the day, but they weren't really, um, they, like we say, they were bad apples. And she just paid them for the day and said, you know, um, you guys, uh, thanks for the work and you don't have to come back the next day. The next morning they came um, into, into our farm and then broke into the garage and um, three guys came with a knife and they, um, yeah, they stabbed my mom in the heart uh, just because of that. Leska's mother was murdered 17 years ago. Her killers were jailed, but recently released on parole. It's uh, changed so many people's lives, you know, like in a split second. She was my best friend, you know, so I'm grieving in a way that I will never have my best friend and the only person that actually knows me in this world. Leska would play her mother's voice message on her phone obsessively. I kept on replaying that voice of my mom over and over again for like at least a year. And yeah, that was sort of like my, um, yeah, my, my last bit of her just remembering a voice. Leska feels a sense of peace when she's in the mountains, but ironically, it was there that she too became a victim of crime. I was cycling and I had my head down and then all of a sudden I, I heard this heavy breathing and I knew it wasn't my breathing and I looked behind me and there was this guy um, that I passed um, and he already basically had his hands on my shoulders and he took my shoulders and he threw me off the bike and fell on top of me. Yeah, luckily my instinct kicked in and I went into fight mode and I grabbed the mace that I literally strapped onto my bicycle an hour before and I threw him off me and um, yeah, I sort of uh, went for him and started kicking and screaming and um, yeah, I shoved the mace in his face and he ran off, you know. 
Leska had passed her attacker at the start of her bike ride and knew she'd be able to recognize him. A farmer told her he knew the man's name and where he lived. The police came and um, we were like, let's go find this guy. We know exactly what his name is, where he lives. I want to identify him now because his face is fresh in my, in my mind. And then the police said to me, well, unfortunately, we can't go after this guy um, because you, you haven't been raped and you haven't been assaulted. So there's no like wounds on your body. And yeah, that was quite shocking actually for, for the police to say that, knowing that um, uh, this guy did this and we know where he lives and we can go and catch him before he does it to someone that doesn't have the same um, response than, than I would have had because luckily I'm the one that fights, you know, and some people freeze. Police spokesperson Colonel Andre Trout told us it's concerning that Leska was turned away by police and it shouldn't have happened. We invite the victim to approach police management to lodge an unofficial complaint so that the circumstances surrounding the allegation can be investigated. The criminal aspect of the case also needs to be investigated so that the perpetrator can be apprehended. Leska wants to put the incident behind her, but it has left her with little confidence in the criminal justice system. It's lawless. <laughs> It's the wild, wild west here, for sure, you know. It's, it's party time for a criminal in South Africa. Janelle Latu feels the same way. She was in an abusive relationship for three years, and when she finally turned to the police for help, she felt let down. First, the case was withdrawn. Then, when it was finally reinstated, her docket mysteriously vanished. It turned up just two days after the media got wind of the story. For weeks, they were trying to get hold of the docket. Action Society stepped in. They were going there physically. They were doing calls, speaking to everyone, all senior members, absolutely nothing. And then we had the press conference, and two days later, they magically find my docket. Western Cape Police Commissioner Tembesile Patakile told News24 earlier this year that he was open to meeting victims who had been failed by the police. He also said members are being trained on all fronts to be sensitive to GBV survivors. Janelle's story is a familiar one, and signs of her boyfriend's controlling nature inevitably escalated. You know, it kind of started out as small, small jealousy. Like, and for me, it's like, we are taught jealousy is a natural thing. Like, you know, it's natural to feel jealous about your partner. Because, I mean, even I had some jealousy when it came to him. Um, so it started small, where it's like, you know, I don't really want you talking to men on your phone. Then it went over to, you would want to leave love bites in my neck before I went to work. Like, you would, I would sit in the car with him and he's like, you're not going to work. Like, I want to leave marks because people need to know that you're with someone. Then it was, my manager's a male, he had an issue with that. Then it was, I wasn't allowed to have any friends, male or female. Then it went on to, you didn't want me around my family. After two years, the beatings started. She alleges that her boyfriend's family, despite knowing about the abuse, did everything to protect him. They, this woman in his family, it's just the mother, sister, sister-in-law, and I feel like they enabled him. They really enabled him. They protected, they protected him to a certain point. And I feel even if his mother stepped in or tried to get him help specifically, none of this would have happened. 
because I mean they they covered up what they did they butter up every situation they talked at me looked after my wounds so I mean family in general families they protect perpetrators over victims but then there was a beating that couldn't be covered up Janelle's boyfriend shattered her wrist her ligaments were crushed and she required emergency medical attention at a hospital when when I got there his parents arrived shortly so his mother came his father um, his sister was there and his brother so his brother and sister left, his mother and his father sat with me and we were sitting in the waiting room and his mother told me like, listen, don't say anything. Um, we will, we're going to deal with this when we get home. Like, you know, let's, let's talk about this when we get home. And he didn't want to leave me alone for a moment because he was afraid I was going to say something. Um, even when the nurse called me in to kind of take, you know, my blood pressure, he refused to leave me alone with anyone. Um, the doctor did say that he asked me, were you in a car accident? Because he said the severity of, of it's not, it was crushed my, like my ligaments. He was trying to understand how someone of my age had um, an injury this severe. And he said like, look, he's not trying to say that we're lying, saying that I fell, but it's just odd for him. Janelle was terrified of staying, but more so of leaving. I was more afraid of what's going to happen if I left than what was going to happen if I stayed. So um, I, I would never really say anything. He would never hit me in places where it was visible. Like I always had bruises like on my arms, on my chest, my legs, all places that I could cover. And with every beating, she believed it could be her last. I was praying. I prayed because um, I, I felt like this was it. I felt like I wasn't going to make it. Um, because that's what he told me. He told me that today's the day I kill you because I told you if you're going to leave me, this is how you're going to go. There's no other way. Despite the terror she experienced, she did finally leave him in 2019 three years after meeting the man who had at first seemed charming. But the nightmare was not over yet, and he began stalking her. Then another woman contacted her, his new girlfriend, her face fractured in three places. The way she looked, because I had a video call with her, I, I don't know, but I just had all this anger come over me, because this is exactly what I was trying to prevent. Because I knew exactly what he's capable of, and... Yeah, and then after that, another one, in the space of one year, another woman that he impregnated and he actually beat her to a point where she lost her baby. They wanted to give him a slap on the wrist with my case. And I was talking to the prosecutor and I was trying to make him understand, like, but I'm not the only one. I might have been the only one to come forward, but I'm not his first case. When his other two victims came forward, the case was taken seriously and finally the wheels of justice would turn for Janelle. The cases were rolled into one and Janelle's former boyfriend now faces charges of aggravated assault with intent to do grievous bodily harm, attempted murder, pointing a firearm and housebreaking. He is currently in jail awaiting trial. For Janelle, her permanent scar on her wrist is a constant physical reminder of what she went through, but the mental scars also run deep. 
I went through a bad stage of depression as well. Um, you know, sometimes the scars are not always physical. It's it's a mental thing. And even till today, I'm still seeing the therapist for it. And it's like three years later. I'm hoping that they make an example out of him. Mainly because people need to take gender-based violence serious. Like I said, it, it wasn't only me. It was other women as well. And... Um, I feel that I'm a voice for many women who was failed or silenced because of missing dockets and things. Next, on A Criminal's Paradise, ordinary South Africans fight back. My reason, I've, I've said a lot, but my reason for getting involved is, is trying to impact that, that ground level decay that we're seeing. I don't think the war is lost yet. I think that we've all got to fight harder and we've all got to find ways to to overcome this imbalance that allows the, the criminals to have such power over the majority of the population. We need to rise up against it. A Criminal's Paradise was produced by me, Catherine Rice. Field recording and final mix by Bertram Malchas. Multimedia editors, Charlene Roert and Nokotula Maniati. Editor-in-Chief, Adrian Basson.